Kia ora from Victoria University of Wellington. Our podcast gives you the chance to catch up with our academics and guest speakers who lead thinking on the big questions facing society. Victoria University of Wellington. Capital thinking, globally minded. Um, it's lovely to see you all here this evening for our Distinguished Alumni Conversation. Um, I'm Lydia Weavers and I've, I've recently retired actually from the university, but I've been asked to come and chair, or chair's not perhaps the right word, um, but anyway, make this conversation go this evening. So we have five of our Distinguished Alumni here this, this evening with us. Um, I'll just tell you who they all are before I do a very brief introduction. There are fuller biographies which I think have been circulating about our distinguished alumni, so I'm not going to go through those. But on the far right, I've made everybody <laughs> far right, a very unusual place for her, we have, <laughs> we have Marilyn Waring. Next to her is Danny Chan, Stephanie McIntyre, David Howman, and Chris Moller. And it's my great pleasure to welcome them here tonight. They're all from the 1970s, although Stephanie's we've established outside as the baby of this group. <laughs> Which means they're all my contemporaries. And um, I'm sure, well, David and I have already established we've got at least one memory in common and I have spent a lot of time in, in my younger life being around Maryland. They um, together represent an extraordinary range of achievements and commitment and great variety um, in what they have become distinguished doing. Sports administration, feminist economics, anti-doping, education and finance and social justice. I think the diversity of talent displayed by our distinguished alumni is prodigious. But what I particularly like about them is that they are all people who is, whose work is about much more than their career path. So Danny Chan co-founded the Academic Colleges Group, which operates 35 campuses across New Zealand, Vietnam and Indonesia. David Howman has been the Director General of the World Anti-Doping Agency. Marilyn Waring, who is famous for many things, but probably to people of my generation, um, we think of the SNAP election first in 1984. But she's worked tirelessly on inequality, especially as it's related to women and same-sex relationships. Chris Moller has combined an outstanding business career with sports administration, making history nationally and internationally as chair and board member of the leading bodies of both rugby and cricket. I just cannot imagine how you do that, but maybe you'll tell us. Um, and Stephanie McIntyre is the Wellington and nationally known voice for homeless and vulnerable people. And I think we at Victoria are proud of your association with our university, proud to have produced you from our university and have you all accepting this award. So welcome and thank you. I thought we'd start just by asking each of you to reveal something about yourselves, say something about yourselves that isn't in the official biography. Um, and I'm going to start with you, David. Well, I'm not quite sure what's in my biography, but um, <laughs> I think what I'd just like to recollect is that I was one of the salespeople for... Capacade, 
And in the old days, uh, when we went to university, we were paid to go, basically, but not quite as much as we had hoped. And so selling cabocage during capping week was something that I look forward to on an annual basis because it supplemented my income and enabled me to go to the Midland Hotel uh, reasonably frequently after playing rugby. <laughs> Danny, what about you? Well, like David, I guess that uh, I can't remember what's in the bios, but um, um, I think in my younger days, I started off um, not in the bios, that I actually did some accounting work um, during my school holidays, and that's what led me to study accounting. And I see my professor, Don, is here tonight. Hi, Don. <laughs> Good to see you. And um, Don probably remembered me the most, being one of the cheeky ones at the audit class. That I remember one uh, particular lesson that we're talking about materiality, which is an accounting term as uh, you know how how much in relation to the total revenue and so on. And then there was two hours exam, that's two hours lectures, very very long. And then when there's five minutes to go, everyone's starting to pack up. And then um, I was starting to walk out the door, and Don said, "Wait a minute, hasn't finished." And I said, "Immaterial." <laughs> 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 so that was my claim to fame. <laughs> well, that's a joke that stood the test of time. <laughs> Marilyn. Um, well, I guess something that isn't in the bio uh, is the opportunity I had at Victoria University to study with Joan Wood for four years. And because my generation... Um, were offered the most fantastic opportunities for tertiary education. Um, I was the first in any of my families uh, to ever go to university. And I was not enrolled in music, but the nature of the fees and allowances structure meant I could enrol in music performance and pay one-tenth of the fees every year, even though it wasn't part of my degree. Uh, and to have the opportunity to study with Joan uh, and to have those few brief years um, really was one of the most important parts of my life. And um, when I contested the candidacy for Raglan uh, in 1975, I never had a chance of winning. Um, so I hadn't ever considered how much it would break my heart to give up my music. Do you still sing? You were a singer, weren't you, I recall? Yes. Um, no. <laughs> <laughs> not, that, not that kind of music, no. no it's <laughs> a shame I was going to ask you, so, you know, perhaps... Could be. <laughs> Stephanie. Well, actually, it's a nice segue because the thing that's not in my bio is that one of my early jobs was that I managed a rock band um, in the late 70s and early 80s. Um, so it, it sort of, I hope it goes to show that um, we should have some, we should put some faith in students that they might have to go through a number of careers before they make some useful contribution to the community. But um, what, it's, what it's given me is an enduring interest in 
in rock music um, and New Zealand music in particular. And so it was in the heady days when you actually could be a touring band in New Zealand, which might seem remarkable to think now that people actually survived off live music. So it was a very, it was a very vibrant music scene. I can remember one evening when the band that I was working with were playing in New Plymouth of all places, and I was so sick of hearing them that I went out to the White Hart down the road, which was the other bar, and I saw this skinny little tiny um, boy with blonde curls, and I thought he'll go far, which and he did because he was Dave Dobbin. So um, <laughs> yeah. So. What's the name of your band? Real to Real. Oh. (laughs) And Chris, last but not least. Thank you. Um, Most of you probably know that I was chief executive of the New Zealand Rugby Union, but what many don't know was that I played rugby socially at Victoria and played for a team called Cornelius Grote. (laughs) And Cornelius Grote was formed by my brother-in-law and a few other friends down at the Cricketer's Arms, down on Tory Street, and they were sitting under a bronze plaque that was Cornelius Grote, the upturned digit of the umpire, covered in spider's webs and uh, all sorts of other mess. So they chose that name, and it's a little bit ironic that I should have become involved in rugby and in cricket, uh, given that start. And the annual event that we all looked forward to was the pre-season game against Weetako Prison. And it was very much what happened off the park that was much greater interest to us, even as broad-minded students in those days, as to what actually happened on the park. Those were interesting times. Just before, I was telling Chris about one of my student memories, which was that in, David thinks it was 1970, was it? 69, the West Indian cricket team came to town. I find this unimaginable, actually, in today's university. But anyway, the, the West Indian cricket team came to town, which included Sir Garfield Sobers. And they went, they were invited to a party in a student flat, and the call went round the hostels, for particularly the female hostels, to attend this party. So, of course, we all did in droves, you know, lots and lots of people went to this party. And it seems like something that couldn't happen now. And I wondered if I could just ask you all to think about what you think, you know, how how things have changed since our student days at Victoria, because it seems to me things have changed quite a lot. So, who'd like to respond to that? Well, I think I think they've changed because there is a, a lot more pressure on young people nowadays to not fail, <laughs> and I think we had pressure on us to uh, get through our exams. Um, and there, for the for the grace of some of my law professors, I might not be sitting here. Um, we didn't have that same pressure to get straight A's from year one. And I think what I learned from university, and Ken, Ken Keith will certainly um, confirm this, is that we were able to grow up and learn how to study and learn how to debate during the whole time we're at university rather than having to worry about getting a job. And so we were there for the sake of our learning and for the sake of growing up and not for the meal ticket, which I feel now is a little more rampant around the place. Yeah. No, I, I, I think actually 
not much has changed about the party because I think that the invitation still goes out in draw and people turn up in their drives. It's I'm just that it's on Facebook. <laughs> but that, that it, I'm not sure that's changed so much. But I think um, what what I uh, observe has changed is particularly in the cost of living. So, for example, when I was a student, I'm pretty sure that the rent for our whole house of six six young adults was the princely sum of $13 a week for the entire house because it was a public trust house. So it was cheaper than most. But um, that, that uh, now I think the, the phenomenal cost of housing is such a significant driver in the lives and the accumulation of debt, not to mention, of course, the cost of studying in itself. And that must have changed the landscape of things. And I, th I think also the, uh, the, the specialisation and the drive to, to select what your career will be, because I'm the product of a times when it was seen as completely acceptable to do a general arts degree. And perhaps will be, I'm sure, in the conversation, time to reflect on how that's influenced our lives. But I don't see that. I, in some ways, I think that's that's sort of disdained. Um, I'm, I don't know if I'm wrong, but my impression is, perhaps oh, it's a stereotype, but that that's, that's no longer seen as uh, useful or viable, and yet I, I would say that it's very much the making of me as a person. Well, as a humanities scholar, I'm very pleased to hear you say that, because that is exactly <laughs> what I think. Yes, uh, I agree that the parties is the main um, fund at the universities, but I don't think that uh, nowadays are having as much fun as we used to have, and I know that in nowadays we didn't have the internal assessments. So you can uh, party the first term and do a little bit of work in the second term, and then uh, work like hell the last term, and because we only have one final exams. But nowadays, because of the internal assessments, so the students have to work sort of constantly uh, to make sure that they get good grade. So um, that, that, to me, that, that's the biggest difference. And I, I find that the students these days are probably not as innovative or cheeky, whatever way, what way you want to put it, as the old students in our days. Yeah, well, it's a really different world. <laughs> um, just such a different world altogether. Um, I was thinking, because I'm a professor, and so I just supervise a whole lot of research degrees, um, that <laughs> we read the core books. We didn't let algorithms determine what somebody else thought we should be reading. So searching <laughs> for material was a really different exercise, right? Everybody read Kuhn's Paradigms and Progress. Nobody read what somebody else filtered through to something or other else. You, you know, that, that so still in academia, that I'm very, I get very disturbed by some of the crap people doing PhDs bring to me just because it's on the internet. Um, so that's, and, and um, I can't speak for undergrads or even, you know, honours years, but for me to find doctoral students still reliant on search, on Googling as opposed to reading, <laughs> um, it, yeah, is, uh, is very different. Um, 
And I'm sure there's, you know, all the rest of the, the things that are just a totally different world for me. I don't pretend to be 23. I don't pretend to understand that. Um, I'm trying to still live my life under the grid so when the revolution comes, it'll take days to find me. So I don't Twitter. I don't Facebook. I am not LinkedIn. Um, and it will, and I never, ever let people know where I am. You know, do you let, will you allow us to see where you are? No. Um, uh, but because I figured by the time they've rounded up all the rest of you, I'll be able to have made a good escape. Um, so, so there's a, you know, and, and actually we're all giggling, but I'm doing that really seriously. Uh, because there's a whole form of entrapment around all of this bullshit. And, it, and it's a really worrying predicament for democracy. Just, so all of that's different. I lived through some worrying predicaments for democracy as well. I acknowledge that. Yes, you did. <laughs> I really don't have much more to add, to be honest, other than to say uni university life has changed when Cornelius Croat ceased to exist. <laughs> I wonder if you could all just talk briefly about what it was that started you off on your career path. Because it would be interesting to know... What, you know, what, was it just a kind of love of something in particular that sent you on that route, or was it a lucky encounter, or was it a marvellous teacher? What, what was it that made what happened to you begin? So, Chris, maybe we'll start with you, since you seem to be drawing the short straw of the last man all the time. That's right. No problem at all. Um, I, I went to a school, um, which is a very prestigious one here in New Zealand, and I frankly did not benefit academically from that. I did on the sporting field and the fun there and in other aspects. But it wasn't until I got to university and really started doing what I wanted to do. At that school, I had to do Latin, which didn't actually push my buttons much, and a few other subjects. But I was interested in business right from the get-go Got involved with the business administration uh, department. Uh, Danny, you were, I think, probably one of the inaugural years of that because it was quite a new degree. So I started doing something that I really enjoyed and therefore started, I think, learning really hard, well, working really hard and enjoying it. And that was the first time in my life that academic work had ever given me any motivation at all. So I give huge credit to the Business Administration Department, particularly Professor Fogelberg, um, who was an outstanding man. And after that, I chose to do a diploma in accounting. Uh, it was the inaugural year of the diploma in accounting. Don, you set it up. Thank you very much. It was a great year for a number of, or a small number of us postgraduate students. And... Uh, as a consequence, I got to understand more about the profession that at those times dominated business in this country. So I chose to join them to frankly beat them. I think I've achieved some of that. <laughs> I think, okay. Yeah, I guess you could call it as a bit of a lucky break for me. Um, when I was um, uh, doing my honours year, um, well, actually... The reason I did honours because I, I sort of couldn't make up my mind whether I wanted to be a boring accountant or not. 
So I decided, no, it's probably a bit too boring for me. So I did honours, and then when I was doing the honours, I had a um, a project to um, uh, to talk to the uh, financial institutions about their uh, portfolio investments. And then um, to thank them, when I finished my project, I gave them a copy each. And then, um, unbelievably, I have four job offers. <laughs> and, and then I couldn't choose if at the same time university um, asked me whether I would be interested to become a junior lecturer. So I was like, gosh, you know, this is really difficult. So um, then, uh, and to, to the credit, uh, the, one of the uh, um, general managers uh, in the MLC, the insurance company, said, all right, Danny, you can't make up your mind. How about working here three days a week and two days to teach? And you're also going to get the full pay. I said, God, this is <laughs> unbelievable. <laughs> But, uh, of course, he knew that universities only work 26 weeks a, week, a year. So he wasn't that generous, <laughs> after all. Um, but I actually made up for it by working extra time. So um, that was very good. And that's what led me into this uh, investment management sort of uh, um, work uh, and took me uh, to other parts of the world. I arrived at Vic and enrolled in English, German, legal system, and political science. And I couldn't believe what fun political science was. So pretty much other ideas went by the by, and um, I think we could do a political science and international politics together. Um, and then honours. And then, as you know, I'd been singing, so off I went to London to study music um, with Margaret Fieldhide. And when I came back, when I ran out of money, um, I came back and I thought, look, I really love being a student, and I enrolled in year one BMUS. Thinking to myself, oh, it's cool. I've already got three music performance. See, one, years one, two, and three. So now I'll go back and I'll enroll in a Bachelor of Music. And for 20 hours a week to keep body and soul together so I could keep singing, I would take my um, pliers and my soldering iron and help to install the new Stout Street um, direct dialing system, <laughs> which you could do, uh, you could do your 20 hours, any hours of the week, sort of, from 6am to 6pm, sort of Monday to Saturday, so that was just cool. You just, How did you have the skills to do that? I mean, that doesn't seem to Because I could with... make green match green and yellow match yellow and <laughs> blue match blue, which was all that was required. And, and I'm very sorry to all of those people where I didn't put enough solder on and <laughs> screwed up. Um, and I was there when Alan Robinson got in touch with me. Alan had taught me Australian New Zealand politics, European politics, futures research, and said there's a job going in the opposition research unit working for George Gear, and I want you to go and get it. Um, so I went down, had my interview. Um, at first I said, okay, but can I carry on doing the Bachelor of Music and... That was fine too, because Parliament worked ungodly hours, and as long as you worked your hours, that could be fine. And then uh, out of that, of course, came the um, the bid for Raglan, and the bid for Raglan was not related to 
any... It was because I joined the women's electoral lobby and all the parties said they'd love more women as candidates if only women would offer themselves, which was complete crap because every year women offered themselves and they never got chosen anyway. <laughs> but in the women's electoral lobby, we thought, OK, well, a whole lot of us will go and put our names in and we won't get selected and then we'll be able to say, think of another excuse, boys, except mine backfired. <laughs> um, and uh, then, so that's the, the next part is that being a member of parliament and having constituents and chairing the public expenditure committee led me to the examination of the very gross domestic product and its incapacity to measure all, uh, well, to even see all unpaid work it's valuing of the environment only when we destroy it, um, and all of those kinds of things. Uh, for a start, I thought it was just New Zealand had a bad accounting framework. Then I subsequently worked out it was imposed on the entire world. It's still the same framework. It's still crap and dreadful. It's why so many bad things happen in Parliament, because they work off shit figures. And, um, and so... You know, in, in academia, once that you've written a book like Counting for Nothing, they expect you to, you know, produce journal articles for the rest of your life on the same subject. And I can't see the point, really, because nothing's changed. The same critique holds. Um, and so that's why I've spent the last six years trying to write my parliamentary autobiography, which, now that I'm not angry, <laughs> actually has moments of fun. I will just give you a quick taste. Ben Couch, in 1981, as Minister of Police, thought we should bring back birching because we were going into an election year and the prisons were getting too full and what should anybody be doing? And I've got all the caucus minutes, you see, which nobody else has had to write these things before. And so you'll be very interested to know that after Paul East and Jim McClay and one or two others got up and said, God, it's medieval, how grotesque, magistrates would never do it and who on earth would birch anyway. Winston said, <laughs> as long as you pay them enough, anybody will take the job. <laughs> <laughs> Miss Marilyn? It's in time. I wrote great stories about it. Most of the right workers are missed out so that they don't get the satisfaction of finding themselves when they look. You know, that's right. But Winston, I presume. Stephanie. That's a, that's a hard one to follow, that's isn't very it? Very hard. Um, but I think to to reflect on on your your question, Lydia, I, I, I'm I could never have imagined when I was a student that I would have ended up in the career that I'm now in, and I think um, so. I mean, I've been in my role at um, DCM Downtown Community Ministry for 12, 13 years, but that's a quarter of a century later from when I was a student, and I, I, I and in that respect, perhaps I'm uh, more similar to what I suspect students these days maybe that the, the lives that they're going into which is I'm I'm I, I think it's it's less typical to have a, a career I mean not that obviously Marilyn's had a very diverse career many of us have had diverse careers sitting here here but that the, the current reality for young people is that um, 
we we do them a disservice to get them to overly specialise because actually the world's changing so much that they might have a number of careers through their lifetime. And so what I, I think, to come back to your question, I think what I, where university was so valuable to me was, um, and I, David, I think you, you really captured it, it was we were able to have a, a student life as well. It wasn't just the parties with the West Indian cricket players. It was, it was learning how to cut a pie in seven even pieces without a protractor in your first flat. Um, <laughs> that were, uh, and, uh, and going on a great number of, of marches. And, and for me, that stirred up my interest. I can trace back my interest in social justice issues to going on my first anti-Vietnam marches, my first marches about Mururoa um, Atoll, you know, um, nuclear testing and those sorts of things that, that awakened in me um, a strong interest in, in social justice. And I think I would now summarise that to say that I learnt, um, to sort of use the language of the day, I think I learnt my emotional intelligence, or that awakened my emotional intelligence that period of my life, and it developed my critical thinking. And they're the two capacities that I've taken with me into my current career that I, I've developed and honed. Um, and I, I mean, I've, I've since then done a master's in reflective social practice, so I've, I've intentionally honed, honed them more. But they're the things that actually make the difference. It's the capacity to read what's coming to me from the future. It's to read and make meaning of the social situations that I find myself in. And they're the things that actually uh, are useful to me as a practitioner today. Um, and I, I, I was lucky enough to have Professor Gehring in his first year. Um, so man, what I had modelled to me is a critical thinker. And I, I tell you what, I was a, I was a precocious 16-year-old when I started at Victoria who was unbelievably ignorant and naive in that respect and yet that's what that's what I think was awakened to me yeah well I've had quite a number of careers and I think um, I'm the oldest on the panel so I can reflect a little bit back further um, my start was with a BA in English and we had a really good English professor Mackenzie who was so immortal Don Mackenzie oh unbelievable um, and, and I think what that taught me, because I went on to law school, was to think laterally. And in the law school that I attended, we had uh, Ivor Richardson, we had George Barton, we had Don Ingalls, we had Ken Keith, we had Robin Congreve. We had a host of really, really good teachers. Um, but the one who has inspired me uh, more in the area of social justice is Roger Clark, who now teaches over in the United States, and he's a very good friend of mine. We've been running together for 50 years. And he uh, was the person who sort of taught me to look outside the black letter of the law and to be responsible in helping people who needed a fair go. Um, and throughout my career, I like to think that I'm a person that stands up for the person who's not given a fair go to make sure that justice prevails. And if I look back and I say, well, I worked for Nga Tamatoa when they were established in the early 70s to try to help young Māori uh, stay away from prison. Um, I've worked for uh, other groups that had backward ways of starting in life that was able, well, I was able to at least inject something in them. And that, that comes back to the sort of teaching we had at law school, which was to 
encourage you to think about the plight of others, to encourage you to think of the way in which the law could help the plight of others, and then to put that into practice when you left law school. And so that's what I did, and, and, I, and I fell into my other jobs as I went on. Um, uh, the job that I most recently had, I had to spend 14 winters in Montreal, and those of you who have been to Montreal in the winter will know that when it gets to minus 40 for four weeks in a row, it's quite cold. Um, and then I had the privilege of dealing with Russia. So I just want to tell you one little story about Russia. So we had to deal with Russia to say that they were not good. And I had a meeting with the Russian Minister of Sport, in, not in Moscow, in Frankfurt at an airport, and he came in with 10 big guys with him, and we had this session which went for four hours, at the end of which he stood up and he said, he spoke in Russian for the whole seat, he said at the end of it, he said, David, never ever forget the Russian Federation is a nuclear power. <laughs> and my idea of social justice went out the window. Anything that sort of stands out to you as um, um, something you would have changed or done differently, looking back? Not really? Never, never look back. <laughs> and never have regrets. So as soon as you start looking back, you start worrying. And we ought to be, at our age, looking forward. Can I challenge David on that? I think you do have to look back, to look in the rear vision mirror and learn, and then look forward. Sorry. <laughs> you're just seeing what's coming after you. That's all you're doing. Well, I mean, I think, I think the danger of looking back, and we've seen a little bit in our discussion tonight, is thinking that, you know, that, that things are worse now. And, 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 you, and that's a sort of trap in itself, too. You can look back at your own kind of rosy youth and think, and I do think some things were better when we were growing up. It was better, for example, to be able to go to university and pay a tenth of your fees and earn the rest of the money you needed in the holidays. We all did that. And it gave us a kind of a double life, and I thought think that was very good. And I do think students have a harder time economically now. But to go back to what Marilyn was saying before about, um, you know, the the um, ubiquity of um, digital media and Googling and students having to, you know, using Google instead of reading, they do live in a digital world. So one of the things they have to learn is how to deal with that. So we can kind of over-romanticise a past which doesn't have both these benefits and these difficulties in it. Um, so I suppose, I suppose what I'm getting to really is, you know, if you think about what we all experienced in relation to the world we now live in, we had some particular advantages to come forward into that world, but, but the world, the complicated world that we're now applying ourselves to also requires some other skills which perhaps we didn't have. See, I think there's a difference between looking backwards and walking backwards into the future so that we don't forget where we came from and hopefully we learn from what we see. Unfortunately, that doesn't happen. 
very often. Um, if You know, Lydia, you were speaking about what a small university it was when we were all there, I think 8,000 students. Um, and that's probably why I remember my four years at Vic as being about the city. So, you know, I think of cushion concerts and quartet for the end of time in the old town hall. I think of sitting outside the Grand in Willis Street to stop, sure, well, we didn't stop them, but to stop the apartheid rugby team. We stopped the street, Go. though. We I stopped remember the street. that very vividly. Yeah, we did stop the street. Um, but alongside that, Jermaine Greer in Student Union, you know, um, the the Vice-Chancellor's series with Ardie Lang, with um, Juliet Mitchell, I remember in politics honours, mainstream papers reading Charlotte Perkins Gilman, Juliet Mitchell, Kate Millett. You know, I'm sure I would really love to know if there are any mainstream feminist writers in all of our honours papers these days, you know, because there's no women's studies anymore, so I guess we're kind of clipped on the margins again. Um, so, and I remember my polit I went to political science and international politics, but my politics came from St. Peter's Church, Willis Street, and from Godfrey Wilson and from Bob Scott. And the reason I went to St. Peter's was because of the stunning music with Anthony Jennings and uh, then John, John Hawley, right? So uh, for me, being at Vic is this entire, you know, and I haven't mentioned working in the butcher's shop, cleaning the Todd's houses and delivering gas pamphlets, which didn't look great on my CV as a, CV as a National Party candidate. Um, <laughs> but but it, for me, it, it, I, maybe because of the size and the time, it was an embrace of the city and what the city had to offer. And for me, that had a real cohesion and... And although I then spent um, some tragic years of my life back in Wellington, um, I, I have always loved my university city. I, I would argue probably that that relationship between the university and the city is still like that. Yeah. Would, would any, of, any of the rest of you like to comment on the city as the place where the university was? Yeah, I, I think still the same really is all relative. And um, you go around the street and you'll probably walk along Lemon Key, you'll meet up half a dozen people you know, and um, you still meet them like that. And um, yeah, I think it has grown, but then it hasn't grown as fast as other parts of New Zealand, I notice, in particular Auckland. And, um, and certainly the um, uh, more diversity in both university and, um, and downtown and, and in terms of the... Um, different sort of races and, and um, so yeah I think it hasn't changed in my view well of course the great thing is that people don't live here for the climate do they so we live here for other other reasons and I think it's always had a reputation as a generous city as a thinking city as a sort of an intellectual city and an, an arts capital and so I think there's a lot of things that Wellingtonians love about I love about Wellington and I, I guess what well, most of us who were here as students and continue to live here now probably feel that we're very fortunate to have chosen this place to, to live. Yeah. 
Um, I, I think you've only got to look at the footprint within the city of how it's changed on a physical basis. This wasn't part of it in my day. The railway station, where quite a number of staff are housed, is not, um, wasn't here. There are other campuses around the city. So I think the physical aspect, I think, demonstrates actually the university and its leaders um, have done a very good job at embracing this city. And, you know, I'm a Wellingtonian, uh, wasn't born or bred here, but, you know, spent 40-odd uh, years passionate about the place. I'm not moving anywhere uh, if I can avoid it. And I reckon we've done a good job. We can always do better at absolutely embracing the city. The challenge is to continue to do it, but I think we've done a reasonable job. I love coming back to uh, Wellington from Montreal, and, and part of wanting to come back here is Wellington, Wellingtonians, and the weather, I have to say, been pretty good in the last month. <laughs> um, and uh, I think what has made that difference is the diversity and the way in which we are, I shouldn't say taught to think, but we think more here. So there's more thinking about other people, thinking about other things, talking about them, debating them, discussing them over dinner parties, all that sort of stuff in Wellington which doesn't occur in that city up the other end um, because they're all about being flash and, and driving the right cars and all those sort of things. So we don't have political debates around a dinner table. We don't have, um, in Auckland, I mean, <laughs> so we have them here. And I think Wellington is that sort of town and the university has a lot to do with that, particularly now the campus is more downtown. Well, I have to say, uh, when we were at university, I was very fond of trekking up the hill and hanging around the CAF and hanging around the Hunter Building and hanging around Rankin Brown and, and all those sorts of things where we stayed for the day. You know, so we stayed at campus and it seems now that people are sort of drifting out of classes and going back to so they don't have that same campus life. Now that may or may not be a good thing. It, it doesn't bother me. I don't, I don't want to be the past, but it's different. Yeah, it's true. We did spend the day there. Mm. I'm going to now open the um, floor for questions because I'm sure that you have things that you would like to ask these five very distinguished and interesting people. Um, and we've got about how much more time, Sophie? About 10 minutes or so. So we've got 10 minutes for you to ask them everything you've always wanted to know and never dared to ask. <laughs> I'm going to start by saying to Marilyn, why national? It seems such a bad fit for you. <laughs> I've never really understood that. Trying to remember the exact date. 1974, Ven Young, opposition member for... Egmont, I think it was called at the time, introduced the Homosexual Law Reform Bill. Kate, uh, the Prime Minister of the time, Kirk, said he was outraged and he would never ever vote in favour of something that was so unnatural and a couple of other immoral and a couple of other words like that. I read that Dominion in the Rankin Brown Library. I stood up and I walked straight down to the National Party headquarters and join the National Party. That makes perfect sense. Thank you. <laughs> and, and oh, God, he, but the, he was a Wellingtonian. He was a lawyer for Labour, went to work in the UN, did exactly the same when Franz Bill came in. Charles. 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 Charles Cheval. Charles, Charles Cheval. Yes, did, did it in reverse. Thank <laughs> you. 
Oh, one at the back. Yes, sorry. I'm wondering if there's anything about your education before you got to Victoria and the education that was then at the primary school, secondary school, that uh, you thought prepared you in a special way for university Oh, I've got quite one quite, I don't mean to be flippant, but one, it, it might come across as a bit flippant, but I was actually a terrible truant at, um, at school and I spent a great deal of time in the corridor and I, my French was so poor because I was, I was out of, I was in the corridor more than I was in the classroom. So, um, but actually I, perfected the art of being able to make the most noise and when you got up and tipped one of those desks that you have at university um, that we had at school. So that was one of the things I learned at school. But I think that actually um, that the, for a lot of us, the way that, the way that teaching happens at primary school um, is such a great model that it's so holistic and so integrated. And for some of us who then my years through secondary school, I, I found the siloed way that things happened at secondary school and the sort of dynamic between teachers and students really, I, it really didn't suit me, my personality type. And I, I, I just want, when I want to say that what I think is so great about the New Zealand education system is that you can have someone like me who really was on a pretty downward trajectory by the time I got to secondary school, who then was able to sort of resurface um, albeit as quite a young student because I left after the sixth form because I couldn't stand school any longer. I still, I still hate, I can still be vehement in my dislike about the secondary school system, but who then, um, sort of, I don't know if I exactly thrived, um, at university, but it, it got me, it sort of got me back in the loop again. So, uh, I mean, I, yeah, it's my reflection on it. I went to a traditional boys' school. I was told by the careers teacher that I needed to go to university and I needed to do a double degree because I was going to go and work for foreign affairs. <laughs> and you met the Russians. <laughs> That's why I was well equipped. I think it's a very interesting question. Um, I was born in Naruahia and I grew up in Taupere. And I spent my first 14 years of my life there and went to so Taupere Primary, where I was um, taught by a man called Trevor Williams, who was the great great grandson of Henry, um, and got his two classes of primary school kids in Taupere to fundraise for two years to put us all on a bus to take us to Waitangi. Um, and then to Narawahi High School. Um, I was born on the day Tapuia died, and I've been to every um, tangi of the Kingitanga at, uh, in Narawahi since. I then got sent for three years to Waikato Diocesan School to be finished off. And um, <laughs> it was my first culture shock because I could count the Māori women at the school on the fingers of one hand. Victoria, for me, apart from Joan Mitch, was white. And I felt more comfortable <laughs> with Korowetri and Tetu uh, Sullivan. And, you know, I don't think the treaty 
was mentioned once in four years of politics. If I'd done anthropology, Joan Mitch might have mentioned it. But it just wasn't part of the action. And I always, I always felt a culture shock when I left Taupiri, wherever I went. Yeah, well, uh, talking about my school days, comparing to now, it's a, I went to a very rough school in Wellington. It's probably the roughest. Um, people would know that. In the old days, they called it Wellington Technical College. And um, that school taught me how to survive because, um, yeah, to get out of trouble, yeah, you've got to be either uh, smarter than other people or <clears throat> do, do something that's quite different. And um, I quickly found that the best protection was to um, get into the first 11 cricket or first 15 rugby because then you'll have people to um, protect you, your teammates. So um, I did get into the first 11 cricket pretty soon. Anyway, um, and um, I, I don't think the school, when I did prepare me well at all for the university, um, because I you know, chose a BCA degree in accounting, and in those days at school that, you know, we don't have accounting or economics, and so everything was new to me, and uh, it was a bit of a challenge you know, when I first started. I, I did make a comment earlier around my secondary school time, so I think I won't repeat. I think probably that's the last question. What was your greatest hope for Victoria To keep turning out students who have a wide approach to life, a wide approach to social justice in particular, in my view. Um, I don't like using the word diversity because I always thought we had a fair hunk of diversity in this country and to come back after 14 years to see that it hadn't really advanced much uh, was depressing to me. Um, so I would hope that as we go forward we are educating more and more young people to be lateral in their thinking, uh, lateral in their behaviour and, and diverse in their attitude. Yeah. And I mean similarly to David I would say that it's that uh, to be developing young minds that will challenge um, the status quo, and that may be different. That that will be that'll be including challenging us. Um, so, but yes, that we that we value people developing a genuinely inquiring mind that that will look at things from from a number of angles. Yeah, continue to produce um, innovative people, mm, innovative. and uh, also. Um, think outside the square. What, what we would say it, it is ontologically and epistemologically <laughs> broad. Yes, yeah. So I think one of the only things I worry about with universities is when the pressure comes on, the collapse back to the traditional pretense that there are things that are objective, clinically detached, etc., etc., when it's profoundly obvious nothing is, um, and and that teachers be really encouraged. I think everybody's, you know, just that as wide as possible. That wonderful thing about when you go to London, when you're young, and you go on your OE, right, and you're a Kiwi. 
And God help us, you're up all night in the Covent Garden queue and then the next night, because it's for the following, you're up all night in the old Vic queue and then you're running down to the free chamber music in Trafalgar Square and then you're running over to a bit of fringe theatre here and, you know, heavens above, you'll go and hear a brass band if it's good. Um, and, and everybody else that you know around you just specialises. And Kiwis go to everything, you know, and so to encourage that kind of, you know, we're excited by everything is cool. Well, here's the man who does cricket and rugby. <laughs> well, no, I won't comment exactly on Marilyn's point, but I will try and say it in a different way. I mean, I'll probably cause heresy when I make this statement, but I'm quite good at that. The university's a business. It has to be a business. It's got to satisfy the needs of customers. And I guess in this day and age, what concerns me is businesses that are primarily physical assets. Now, that's not to say the university is solely physical assets, but a lot of businesses that have physical assets, albeit with really good people, are being disrupted worldwide. And I just wonder about the place, and I don't sit where the pro-chancellor sits, so I'm not privy to the council's discussions, but I just wonder in 10, 20 years, 30 years, what a really leading edge university anywhere in the world looks like and how it operates and how it functions and how it delivers on all the good things that I absolutely agree that my colleagues have talked about. Well, a very interesting question to finish on. There's been a very interesting series of articles about um, universities in Australia where they podcast all the lectures and the staff are finding that the classrooms are just empty. There's been a lot of, you know, disturbing pictures of empty classrooms. And it does seem to me, whatever you think about the buildings, one of the things that creates the kinds of things we value in a university is the engagement of people, of students with each other, as well as with their teachers. If you don't have that, then something very big is missing, I think. And building on that, I can't see how the things that the four of you talked about can actually be delivered to the level we enjoy today under that sort of model. Now, I'm not opposed to the model, but how do you get people engaging with people? How do you use, go to my sporting situation, teams to excel and operate together? Very difficult. I think, in a digital age. But there'll be changes, I'm sure. Well, on the theme of people engaging with people, it's time to have a drink. <laughs> so can I say to you that, um, where, is it, where are they supposed to go, Sophie? Up the back stairs is where there will now be a reception. But before we do that, can I ask you all to applaud our wonderful distinguished alumni who have been not only very distinguished in their careers, but so generous with their time and conversation and energy this evening. And it's just a pleasure to know that we own these people. <laughs> To stay up to date with the latest cutting-edge research from Victoria University of Wellington, subscribe now through iTunes, Stitcher or your favourite podcast provider. Thanks to Te Koki New Zealand School of Music alumni Kenyon Shanky and Stephen Patton for the use of their music. 
Victoria University of Wellington. Capital thinking, globally minded.